Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game of me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. So that was rather a chipper, chipper opening there. It's far more chipper than I feel. Yeah, I feel hello and welcome to that. I said hello welcome to um, this is a special interview Kieran uh, Pat Nevin um, I think definitely one of my favourite footballers Kieran and I'm sure one of yours and also somebody whose cultural and political outlook I think we share to some degree former Chelsea player of course Everton player Scotland winger PFA chairman Radio 5 live summariser author um, and his particular latest book is Football and How to Survive It. Um, but we were more interested in his time at, at Motherwell, Kieran, when he was uh, chief executive at Motherwell at a, a time of great financial difficulty. And that's something we concentrated on or tried to concentrate on. And then we ended up talking about music and Norman Whiteside in the way these things go. Um, so this is, what, this is what Pat had to say. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Normally, we ask our guests to give a brief introduction to themselves before we start, but you're Pat Nevin, so I don't think we need to do that. Really. We'll just go for the coolest footballer of his generation, if that's all right, and crack on. I'll take that. I'm sure I don't deserve it, but I'll take it. <laughs> uh, Pat, we talked about the book on the pod earlier, and it's... Um, uh, I, I know it's a brilliant read. Frustratingly, it's wrapped up under my Christmas tree, at the moment, so I haven't read it all the way through. I'm about to do it at Christmas. But just to start, we've we've had player managers. We're used to that. We've had player coaches. But I think I'm fairly safe in saying that you're the only ever player chief executive the game has ever seen. How did that come about? Well, certainly player chief exec at the top role, at the top level of um, football, uh, particularly Scottish football, in this case with Motherwell. No, it's coming to the end of my career. And um, I mean, I'd done other jobs. Obviously, I'd been PFA chairman, uh, which is a serious job. You know, you're, you're involved in every level of football there. You're talking, you're involved in, you know, how the monies are paid for television deals. You're involved in all the legal stuff about contra- contracts. It's it's a big old thing. Um, so, I'd, and my background, obviously, was... I'd, been doing a degree when I was younger in economics, accounts, and business studies. So I've got the background to, to know how to do this stuff. Um, but then it's it's the jumping in at the deep end when uh, I was coming near the end of my career. And a chap who I'd actually known a little bit 
um, in London, and he'd run these, they'd call them bucket shops in those days, you know, old travel agencies. And uh, he, I'd, he'd asked me to do him a couple of favours a couple of times and uh, just to help the business along, just come and play in a couple of football games. Anyway, years later, he uh, he asked me uh, to come and run a football club if he managed to buy it. Um, and the first time he did this, I was 26 and I was playing for Everton and he wanted to buy this football club. And anyway, long story short, which is in my first book, actually, uh, The Accidental Footballer, long story short, <laughs> I didn't realise the club he was trying to buy. It was Celtic. And he wanted oh. me to be chief executive of <laughs> Celtic at wow. the age of 26, in the middle of my career, while being a, 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 a kind of an international player. And uh, I mean, it's a, it's a great story. And again, it's in my first book. Um, it was out a couple of years ago. And uh, I, I liked your reaction there. You went, what? <laughs> Which was mine, my reaction at the time as well. Anyway, he never got to buy Celtic, this guy. But uh, seven or eight years later, he ended up buying Motherwell. Um, but this time I was back in Scotland playing for Kilmarnock. And uh, he said, do you want to come and uh, either do whatever you like, basically. So come and play for the team. I'll buy you. Um, would you well, like to be a manager? And I said, no, I'm not interested in being a manager. Um, but would you like to oversee the, the entire club? Because he didn't know anything about football at all. And I said, yeah, okay, I'll do that. That sounds... I said no f at first. And then after a little bit of persuasion, I thought, actually, this could be weird. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I didn't take it frivolously. I, I didn't take it frivolously. But what an extraordinary thing to do. And I was still playing the first team. Um, and of course, there's this strange, weird situation, which I'm sure you would get onto in a moment or two, where I'm chief exec, I choose the manager, but then the manager decides whether I play or not. So you've got this really weird, you know, most, most um, business structures are pyramids. And this is a weird one <laughs> of my own making. Um, but it but it worked for a reason. That side of it worked for a reason, purely because I I chose a manager, and then said to him, "I am the one player who can't bang on your door and say I demand the game." And the reason is, I have chosen you, and you are my decision, and I will trust your decisions. If if I am not in your team, then I have to accept that. Um, and when we understood that, it, the the manager and I were, were absolutely fine with it except they get hardly ever played me. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the chap who bought, this is John Boyle we're talking about. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering what sort of favours you must have done for him at an early age that he asked you to take over Celtic for him. So was so Motherwell then was a kind of consolation prize for him, was it? Or, or was he a, a local lad? Was, it, was Motherwell his club? Was that always his aim? Well, first of all, I'll tell you the favours um, with John Boyle. His companies, he used to buy other companies. So I think it was, he had Falcon Travel and he, he bought another one. And when he's buying up this next company, he wants to show the new company that he's buying into that he's quite cool. So he put on a football game, you know, he's seven aside or whatever, football game. But add a, add a bit of pizzazz. I'd done the same degree as him, but a few years later. And, and a lot of the people that worked for the company were in my degree course. So 
he'd ask them if I could come along and just turn up and kick a ball about. And the thing is, that's actually very, very important to the story because I would then, so their their, their company was based in Notting Hill Gate. Uh, I ended up living about a half a mile away from there, uh, down Kerr High Street. And you go up on a Friday night and the entire company was out having a drink on the on the on the chairman on the owner Boyle, he just took took care of people, took care of his work, workers. So I would never have considered doing the job except this guy had a very unusual attitude towards the workforce. I.e., we'll take care of you. We're mates. Um, if there's you know a lot of money made, you know you're all sharing it. All the, everything that you would do to keep a workforce cool and happy. So when he did come back in all those years later. And the reason why he asked me is because he knew that he knew I'd done the same degree. He knew I'd been chairman of the PFA, which is a huge job. And he knew I knew about football. So, I mean, I ticked a lot of boxes, to be fair. Um, and when I kind of committed to that, I ex- just explained to him, look, I've got interesting ways of thoughts of running a business, but they seem to equate to how you look at it. And because of that, I'll have a go. Um, and we'll see how we can get it to work. And to be fair, it worked really well at the start, really well. It flew at the start. Yeah. <clears throat> I understand that he asked you, when he bought Motherwell, he asked you for three separate costing options. Um, is that so? If, do you remember what they were, these costing options? Yeah. What, he actually didn't ask them. He said, look, could you have a look at the club? And I said, look, I'll have a look for a month. Um you know, it's kind of hard when you're playing football. You, you you look for a month, but you're you know looking at the structure of the club. You're looking at where the costs are. You're looking at where the incomes are. You're looking at where the, the standard of everything from the playing. Everyone will just look at the playing staff, obviously, but it's not that. You know, it's where the, the costs will are, are are hidden. It's where you can actually go and back and get some more money in, in other areas. Is there anything out with the club? So the whole structure of how a business should work a month to have a, a quick overview. And I said to him, look, I'll, I'll come back with three options. And he said, that's fine. And I come back with three options, and the three options were pretty simple. They were broad brush, because you have to do that in sh- such a short period of time. And the first one was keep on spending the money that you're roughly spending, i.e. he'd just taken over the club. I knew that wasn't going to be the case because he'd made big promises in the press, which I immediately told them to stop doing because <laughs> that is not a good thing to do in football um, and uh, the, the first one, the other one was look, if you basically plow in and make losses of a million quid a year I'll, I'll get you safety in the top level at Scotland and we can start building a youth department that's much better etc and structure the club in a, a great way that you know, over time five, ten years it can be a really interesting ongoing concern. And I said, well, I'll give you the third option as well. The third option is like two million a year, you know, which I would urge you not to do. Uh, from that, I can get you probably third, fourth place. And in, in, you can't beat Celtic Rangers because they've got 20 times what you've got. You know, it's just money. They, you, you can't get to them. And if you get near them, you get near them briefly. So, um, Anyway, I told them that, that you know, for two million a quid a year, which I urge you not to do, I can get you that, and I can get you that fairly quickly. And uh, and that didn't make us the third biggest spenders. Nowhere near it. 
absolutely nowhere near. Made his fifth or something like sixth. But, you know, if you organise in a good way, I, I felt we could do that. And uh, immediately he said, yeah, we'll go for the two million a year. I'm like, what? <laughs> Are you mad? I said, Don't do that. I said, I'm just telling you, what, this is what it costs to get to these three different areas. Now, two million, that's over. That's losses. That's overspend. You know, so you're not talking about mass because, you know, the, the business is bringing in a lot more money. You know, obviously we get television monies, we get gate receipts, all that sort of stuff. Um, so, and the, the, the company was running roughly at an even keel at that point in time. So, but I think he'd come in and he wanted to, uh, to have an impact. Uh, to answer your earlier question, which I'm not ignoring, which, why did he do it? Why did he choose... Um, Motherwell. Well, he said at the time that um, that was his boyhood club, um, and that may well be the case. <laughs> but you know, he certainly fell like a lot of people. He he certainly fell in love for the club uh, quite quickly. Football's really a, it's a very unusual business. People think you take over a football club and it's like every other business. And there's a lot of differences in football. I mean, a hell of a lot of differences in football. It, it doesn't I mean I studied marketing. I did all that. Some of the stuff that we put in place, which should have an uplift and uh, and make the footfall bigger, had negative effect. Had a negative effect. You know, like increasing the quality of the product. So it should be better. Fan, but the fan base went down. Yeah, it, it's odd. We interviewed um, a friend of mine. Uh, yesterday, uh, <clears throat> who moved to Portugal and became involved in a Portuguese fourth division club. And my friend is an astute businessman who knows all about football, but is just totally bamboozled within two weeks by the, the business of running a football club, even in the Portuguese fourth division. So you, you found yourself in this situation, and you say it went very well at the start, but I remember a heartbreaking photograph of you looking shell-shocked sitting on the steps of Fir Park after you resigned when the club went into administration. What were the circumstances of that administration? And and, and you've said it recently that you still think that was a mistake. Even this, you know, 20 years, 21 years afterwards, you, you say that was still a mistake. Do you still believe that it was a mistake for that club to go into administration? Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, the reason, lots of reasons why I write the last couple of books I've written, and certainly a big part of writing the most recent one, which is... Um, football and how to survive it and uh, if you look at that picture you can tell I barely survived it <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, and I demanded that picture was in the book to underline to people the stress and the way it can um, push you right to the edge uh, by the way I'm not devastated for me there I'm actually quite happy for me I'm in a great position because I've got other jobs to go to I've got other things to do um, I just felt as if the people that I had worked with in the club had been let down um, and obviously I was fearful of people losing their jobs, etc. And I'd spent these four years, and people think, oh, you, people want binary simplistic answers, don't they? It, make, it makes life easily, easy. And you say, oh, do you think it was a good or a bad decision, right or the wrong thing to do? And wouldn't it be lovely if you could say yes and no there, eh? Wouldn't, wouldn't life just be dead easy? But it really depends on what perspective you're looking at it from. So the perspective I was looking at it from very openly, was, right, okay, he'd plowed a lot of money in. Obviously, something had gone wrong with his other businesses, and there was a massive thing had gone wrong in football in Scotland. 
the television deal had fallen through and what was going to be a 60 million deal became a 12 million deal. And you can you imagine trying to run your businesses, which is already running at a loss for that to happen. So that was kind of disastrous, really. That was with, that was kind of hard for them. But I, what I'd done is I'd, I'd decreased the costings back down again. We were back on roughly the keel that we'd been on before. He'd, he'd lost a lot of money, but I'd explained to him that he was going to do that. That's 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 if, you, if you're going to spend the money, you're going to spend the money. You don't get it back in football most often. Um, and but when it was coming to that time, where obviously they were looking at administration, and I was trying to cut the costs, I did cut them roughly by half. That's that sounds easy, doesn't it? Uh, trust me, it isn't, right? <laughs> it's really not. And while you're trying to play Celtic and Rangers, etc., and be competitive. But I knew, or didn't know, but I suspected something like that could happen right from the start. If you're going to be involved in business, you need to be strategic. You need to have long-term plans. You need to have your what-if plans. And I had the what-if plan. So I had actually, I had a, a buyer waiting in the wings so <laughs> and because I knew that was going to happen and the buyer was very keen to get involved again he wanted to keep me I didn't actually particularly want to stay at that point but I would have so from my point of view it didn't need to go into administration um, they could sell it I had a buyer um, but they couldn't come to an agreement um, and when they went into administration then uh, the owner just said he wanted me to stay on he was desperate for me to stay on and you know work for the new method of administration. But I just morally couldn't do that. So, and simply the morality is I'm not watching people get sacked and I'm walking up with a big pay packet in my back pocket. I just don't do that. It's not my morality. Um, and I'd always say to him from day one, I had very unusual ways of doing it, very unusual business methods, which was when offered a contract as an executive, I refused and said, if you want me to leave, I will walk out the next day. If I want to leave, I will walk out the next day. We don't need a contract. Not many executives down that road, do they? <laughs> no, they don't, no. When you say they couldn't reach an agreement about the sale of the club, was that purely on the the price that John Boyle wanted for the football club? Oh, I would love to know the answer to that question because, again, it's a big part of the book. Oh, you don't know? No, a big, big part of the book. What happened was these are two businessmen, remember? So I've managed to get them together. Uh, when the administration's just beginning to crash down. And I get them together and uh, I said, right, let's have this meeting now, see if we can slash it out. And both of them say, yeah, we'll go and have a meeting. Uh, you wait outside. I went, what? <laughs> yeah, you, wow. Yeah, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm the guy who organized this. You don't expect me. And I sat outside thinking, if this guy buys it, I'm not staying. Because if you don't trust me to be in the meeting, and I thought, I'm not having that. I, and if you're an executive, you, you shouldn't have that. Anyway, they wanted to have their private meeting. Had the private meeting, didn't last long, came out and said, the guy who was going to buy it said, nah, he's changed the rules. I'm not having it, and walked away. Um, so I never found out. I, I, both of them just drove away. <laughs> Would you believe it? And this is brilliant that we're chatting now. See the guy who was going to buy it? That's I'm trying to think of many years ago. That is 20-odd years. Yeah, maybe two, just about two decades yeah, ago. Yeah, 2002, what, yeah. Met him yeah. again for the first time two weeks ago. And <laughs> Wow. 
and uh, I mean, we never just met up again. You know, I went in a very different direction. I went working in England and London and Dublin, and he's still up in Scotland. So, you know, paths didn't cross. And then I was at a hotel with my wife uh, in Glasgow um, just a couple of weeks ago. And I just thought, there's one damn question I need to ask you, mate. What happened in that uh, meeting? Because it was never made clear to me. But do you know that thing where a social situation where you can't actually bring up business? It was one of them. And my wife standing there and it was that kind of moment of, I'm trying to know what happened because I never found out. I mean, I can guess. I think we can all guess that, you know, that the previous owner, John Boyle, wanted uh, to be, you know, compensated for the value of the assets, that sort of stuff. Yeah, you know. Um, so I, I understand that and I would, I would get all that. Um, and, and it may well be that just they were so far apart that it wasn't even worth pushing. Um, and I'd say to John Boyle, look, if you want out and you don't want any more debt piled on you, I've got a buyer. So I think initially he'd made it look as if he was happy to look right off the debts. But you know that's not what happens in business. We all know that's not what <laughs> happens. Um, so even though the fans are thinking, oh, it's crushed and there's no money, and I'm looking around thinking, well, that stadium's worth a, a good few million. Um, those players, which I know, there's a guy called James McFadden that was coming through, and I'm thinking, yeah, he's worth a couple of million on his own. And we would clear the debts, like, you know, just those two things, you know, if you did. So complicated in those sort of situations, but I wasn't, uh, party to those, I wasn't allowed to be party to those sort of discussions uh, and I didn't demand I was because it's not my place, if you feel I'm not to be involved in those discussions then I don't want to work for you full stop, I'll go and work and I had other jobs to do, I've got all strings to my bow Hey it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theatres May 17th you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you don't mind me saying so, Pat, you always uh, seem to be one of the most decent and sympathetic of human beings. 
so did you feel any sense of personal responsibility that people were losing their jobs, that the, the town was losing its football club? Were, were you able to sleep at night? Number one, town was never going to lose its football club. Remember, I had a buyer, so don't worry. Never a moment's sleep left. Uh, uh, people losing their jobs, if I felt as I had one tiny bit of responsibility for it, I couldn't have slept. But I didn't have any. And that's why the book was written, to explain to people that I did come out of this company and the owners, they give you a, a budget. I explain why that budget's too much or too little or try to hold back on it. From my position as an executive, I was the one who was dragging back the costings, dragging back the spending, trying to make sure you didn't get into trouble. Um, had I at any point done the opposite of that, then yeah, you're absolutely right. I'd have felt dreadful about it. So the people that were losing their jobs, I was gutted for them. But every one of them came up to me and said exactly the same thing. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to take another penny out of this. I'm not working for this, even though I could do. Um, morally, I can't do that if you are all going to, or some of you are going to lose your jobs. I absolutely wouldn't do that. Um, and I think well, they are some simple. And to my point, a very, very good point from them was, well, this guy's still worth tens of millions of pounds and he's written up our contracts. What's going on here? The morality's not getting pushed on somebody like me. because <laughs> you know, I'm not worth tens of millions of pounds, I can promise you. And I'm not the owner. And that was the fury. And I think it's a business thing that a lot of people within business think. It's the business, you know, you know, tough luck with people that have got contracts or whatever, you know, if the business is put in the administration, you know, they just shrug their shoulders and move on. And as they, quite a few of the players at times said to me, yeah, but he's going to go back to one of his loads of mansions. And he's got that tonight. We have no jobs. We're out of it. And that's why in a moral situation, A, I didn't feel, I felt bad for them. I was gutted for them. I'd fought and done everything I could for them. Um, and again, the story of this book, which is a really, is, is the amount of people that have told me that it reads like a, a thriller. Um, and it was meant to be, I wrote it that way. But, you know, that sounds like, oh, I'm great and the others are bad. It ain't like that. Really isn't like that. I don't write like that because that's not what life's like. It's underlining from the businessman's perspective. I can give you, I'll give you that. I'll absolutely give you that with honesty. And people always want this binary, I hate you, you're terrible, I'm great, all that. Don't get that from me because that's pathetic and simplistic. And the amount of people that, the vast majority of people come up to me and said, either, God, you let John Boyle off light in that book, or, my God, you were fair to him. You were absolutely fair. And of course I'm fair. You should be fair. Because it's too, it's too self-indulgent not to be. So, uh, in the simplest terms, did I ever lose any sleep about it? Actually, no. Did I ever feel any guilt about it? I'm afraid not a smidge. Um, and I felt guilty about plenty of things that I've done wrong in my time. Don't worry about that. But that one, no. I want to bring Kieran in here, Pat, because what you've just told us is a theme of the pod and has been for four years, Kieran, in that here you have uh, a businessman, somebody who's clearly a, a good businessman because he's got the money to buy a Mother World Football Club. He's being advised by Pat not to spend this money, and yet 
goes ahead, spends the money that ends up putting the club into administration. What comes over businessmen, Kieran, when they suddenly take over a football club? Is it simply that they don't realise football is like no other business? Yes, that they think they have transferable skills. They think that because they've been successful in property, they've been successful in telephony, automobiles, whatever their background is, that all they've got to do is to run the football club in, in the same way. But football football success is not measured in terms of financial returns on investment. It's, it's measured on the pitch. And you therefore have that paradox of, we, we saw in the Champions League final in 2021, the two clubs that had lost the most money in Premier League history were Chelsea and Manchester City. And there wasn't a single person in that stadium that was unhappy about it. The, the owners were getting glory. The fans were getting to see their, their heroes play at the ultimate level. And the players and managers were all being handsomely rewarded. But from a business school point of view, absolute disaster. Mm. And Pat Motherwell are... Fan owned now is that a, a model of ownership that you approve of? Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, it's probably not going to win you things in the big bigger scheme of things. <laughs> well, it did kind of with Barcelona for a while, but then look where the business model. Just as you were mentioning there, look where it goes to to actually win in the current business, uh, the way football business is. You, you need huge sums of money. Now that you know, you may add another couple of zeros on the end if you're moving English football, Champions League football, away from Scottish football. But it's the same gag. The people that spend the most money tend to win the tournaments in the short term. Um, and, and that's just the way it is. I find the business of football, and always have done it, found it incredibly interesting. You're talking about that game between Manchester City and Chelsea, and everyone was happy. Yeah, I was particularly happy. A, I was at the game. B, I was doing commentary and getting paid for it, and C, my team won. So I was kind of <laughs> pleased with it. But I also understood that there was a, a business model that looked very, very unusual. Now, I've actually got quite a, a very different outlook. Now, people who know me know I'm kind of uh, quite kind of social democratic type of person, right? But I actually look at it a slightly different way with football. Do you know the, the money that's been spent? They're trying to hide the monies that are being spent. Do you know you could if you could possibly simplify it in any way by, you know, you know, the complicated business deals that they do? Actually, I don't care if you want to spend as much money as you want in the football club and go into massive debt. I don't think there should be any reason why that's not allowed. Actually, can I change that word? Not debt. I think you should be allowed to put as much cash, money, into a football club as you like. Be you Abu Dhabi, be you Qatar, be you, uh, at the time, Russian oligarch, but that obviously doesn't happen now, or American conglomerates and that. I don't care, as long as it's not debt. If, you're, if you say, right, I want to buy this, um, buy this football club and make it huge and spend a billion quid, spend it. Don't put it in debt, spend it. I have no problem with that. The problem is, is the debt. And that is what is crushing a lot of those clubs. So you're absolutely right to say what was happening in Manchester City and Chelsea and others. My other team, my other love is Everton. And look at the problems they've had with the, the debt that's been set up. So uh, financial fair play, I absolutely get it. But I would change that one rule and say, spend as much as you like, as long as it ain't debt. And businessmen look at you and go, well, why would we do that? 
I said, because the rewards of spending that money is what you wanted in the first place, which is the fame, which is the glory, which is to piggyback on the beauty of the game of football. And you shouldn't be getting that out of debt. That should cost you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Pat, we talked about you being the only uh, player stroke chief executive. Why do you think so few ex-footballers end up in the boardroom? I mean, there's a lot of talk. We'll come on to the PFA and your role in it in a moment. There's a, a lot of talk about you know, what footballers do with the rest of their life and they tend to go into coaching or to, into media. But why do so few of them end up uh, in the business side, at the, the sharp end, do you think? Well, just what we mentioned a few minutes ago about transferable skills. Um, what are the transferable skills? And sometimes being a winner and all that sort of stuff that people are talking about. That might be something. But in actual fact, uh, if you play football, you've probably, unlike me, I was quite unusual because I'd studied other stuff and I had an, a hinterland and a different life out with football as well. But if you're going to be a top-level footballer, what are you going to spend your time doing? You're going to spend time training. You should be training. You should have a lot of the time, a lot of the players, especially back in the day, they weren't really sticking to their studies in school because they had one dream. You know, everyone always talks about they have the dream of being a footballer. So you do the 10,000 hours and a bit more. So by the time you come 33, 34, 35, you know, to suggest that you should then go and be a high-power executive and, <laughs> you know, you might lack some of the skills and you've got a lot of learning to do. Now, in actual fact, as PFA chairman and our union, what we try to do is we try to make sure that the players were given the opportunity to learn a load of these skills while they were playing so that we could push this on. And certainly it's worked for a number, um, but they are quite behind the curve. You know, when you get to that age, 35, 36, 37, you have knowledge of certain areas. But I was unusual that, you know, I knew every area of it purely other than management. I knew every area of it because I'd been on every single committee at every level in England and in Scotland. That's unusual. That's really, because the rest of them are, I mean, I'm painting one side of the picture. The other side of the picture, there's a few of them out having a drink, you know, and enjoying life and (laughs) doing the things that young men do when they've got a few quid. So I was a wee bit more earnest when I was younger. But you're right, getting back to the transferable skills, I, I love that conversation. I love that conversation about business people coming in. And from time immemorial, it, you know, whether it was the baker who used to come in or the local steel manufacturer or whatever came in, and then it was you know people that were involved in you know, different bigger businesses. And now it is, you know, it's city states, it's you know, it's massive, massive, massive companies. It's all the same problems. It's all the same things. Yeah, they're just yeah, yeah. they're not actually that different. They all still know that they know better. When in actual fact they don't a lot of the time. Every single thing that they have learned in their part of their industry is better than football football because football's stupid. And football eats these people up and always has. <laughs> <clears throat> Yeah, I I remember talking to um, uh, Steve Koppel, or as we Palace fans call him, Saint Steve Koppel, and he he talked about how frustrated he used to get as a player because people were baffled by the fact that he had a degree and that he read newspapers and took an interest in the wider world around him. Was that was that your experience? Did you find that people treated you slightly differently 
as a footballer because you 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 had as you say this hinterland and you had this this wider cultural frame of reference yeah you got a lot about it um but again that's the first book was a lot about that um the accidental football was to say right okay i've become a footballer I actually hadn't tried to become a footballer. I know that sounds really weird, so it took a whole book to explain how I managed that one. But you come <laughs> in and you are different. Now, let's be fair. I mean, how many other outsiders are there in every other work? Now, if you listen to this podcast today, you might feel a little bit of an outsider in certain areas of your work. But you can still go to work. You know, and being a footballer, I mean, one of the lines I often used was, being a footballer is what I did. It's not who I am or who I was. So you go in, you do the job the best you can. You you mingle perfectly well with the rest of the players. You might not share interests with them, but how many other people in jobs do? You know, everybody else in the office. You know, so I was very comfortable. I actually quite, I liked footballers as a general breed. We didn't share the, the same uh, frames of reference. I mean, a classic one, one of the, Favorite ones was I used to read quite a lot of heavy literature and still do. Like, but you know, then when I was younger, a lot more. So they're up playing cards, and I'm reading Dostoevsky and Gogol down at the front, right? <laughs> and, and classically, I'm sitting at the front one day, and one of our lads who's no longer with us anymore, Dale Jasper, he's walked on the coach and he's looked at my book. He's went, "Bloody hell, Patsy, I know one of your authors." And I'm going, I'm looking at my book, and it's like the short stories of Anton Chekhov. And I'm going, really? <laughs> you were into Russian literature? I said, sit down, have a chat. He sat down and his first words were, yeah, Patsy, always like Chekhov. But I didn't know you'd been to Star Trek. Nah, it's not that Chekhov. <laughs> so that sums it up really. And to, to underline the other bit of it, they all called me, for when I was at Chelsea at the start, my nickname was Weirdo, right? Oh, wow. But I was absolutely and utterly convinced, and still am, that they were the ones that were weird, and I'm the one that's quite normal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I remember seeing an interview with Roy Hodgson where he said he, he learned quite early on in the managerial process not to use Russian literature as a motivation tool for the players. Um, you, you mentioned the PFA, uh, Pat, and your role as chair back in the 90s. How much do you think the role of the PFA has changed since then? Um, and how much has its funding model changed since then? It's a, it's a, it's a bigger, more well-organised beast, I imagine, now, isn't it? Um, well, first of all, when you don't know something, put your hands up and say you don't know. I don't know how the, work, the model works, actually, just now, um, because you need to be within that organisation to know. What I have seen over the years, um, certainly when I was there and after I was there, a lot of people from the outside um, telling everybody how badly this was run, what it was doing wrong, why it was such a terrible organisation. And it almost always is done from a position of extraordinary ignorance because they don't, know, they don't understand and know the works that are done within the PFA and the huge sums of money spent in the PFA on fantastically good, not just causes, but things that are good for the good of the game. And it started up incredible things. So... Um, certainly what was originally argued for by Gordon Taylor in one was a percentage of the television monies uh, or not a percentage but a right to the percentage of the television monies now that used to be not a lot of money that is now 
billions, right? So <laughs> the, the the organization become became bigger because it became and stronger because it became wealthier. But it was to use those funds in the right ways. Um, and for all the stuff that's been said, and you know, you make everybody makes mistakes along the way, and there are good and bad actors in every single organization. Uh, but I could sit here for the next two and a half hours and tell you fabulous stories about the good that the PFA has done, be it from pushing the anti-racism agenda before anyone even noticed or bothered with being there for re-education for, you know, I, I say in one of the books, I say that I was going to do a whole chapter in the PFA and saying, you know, this does expect you know, like pensions and things like that, you know, uh, actuarial valuations of pension schemes, you know, the sort of stuff that it sounds like dry, dull, boring work. And that's only because it's dry, dull, boring work. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's incredible the work that's it's incredible the work that's actually been done within that organization. I'm not saying everything's perfect about it. The model now I'd be quite intrigued to know more about. Um certainly one or two people went, because remember I was chairman, that's a non-paid role. I've never been paid by the union. Um, and a number of people have suggest, suggested to me a few years back that I should maybe go back and get involved again. Um, but no, you move on. There's other things you could do. And I just hope that the union continues to, where it's, it fights over the, the the decisions they have to make. And the world's a more complicated place now, uh, especially with the PR situations that you find within you know the men's game, the women's game, the, the, the subtleties between um Certainly, as long as the finances have been moved in the right way to help those that made the green game great originally. Mm. <clears throat> Pat, we've seen uh, great improvement in the last few years in the way that 16, 17, 18-year-olds are treated when they're rejected by a club at the end of their youth end. Do you think football does enough, though, for those players who leave the game at the age of 33 and 34 who still have... You know, 30 years of employability to them because it, 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 it seems to me that there are so many players that are kind of left a little bereft and left a little without support when they, they leave a job. That I mean, I've sp spoken to quite a few footballers and cricketers who just, they can't adjust to, to coming into civilian life, for want of a better word. Do you think football does enough to help those? The opportunities are there. It's whether they take them at the right times. It's as simple as that. Um, I spent an entire career, um, you know, I, obviously I had other things and for the whole time through my career, I mean, I was 19 years a pro um, and as long I underlined to myself, it, it's what I do, it's not who I am. So when I left, I'll go and do another job. Now, if it's driving a taxi, it's driving a taxi. It's okay, I've not got the ego to think that's a, a step down, you know, and whereas we are, if you're a footballer or a famous person, you're expecting, oh, everything's been done for me forever. No, you shouldn't. You've not got a right for that. No one's got a right for that. There's people who haven't got anywhere near the opportunities and the stats that you've had before. So, yes, I've got sympathy because it's a hard transition for a lot of people. But the opportunities are there. And the PFA, we had every single opportunity for education. And the vast majority of players went, oh, shut up. We're not interested. We're going for a drink. And I'm saying, well... You, you know, you need to find out this later, mate, that you're going to need this. Um, I started realising when I was working with the union, working with players, that as an outsider, I'm looking at them thinking, if, when they all leave, five years after they've left, the likelihood is you'll be 
divorced. You have lost all your friends. You have lost all your backup. Um, quite a lot of times you've lost all your money. You might have an addiction on top of that as well. Um, and I'm looking around saying, why can't you all see this? It's all around you. And the more, and it's like the classic taking a horse to water. You can't make it drink. So you always make that water available. And that's what certainly in the early days of PFA did. To some degrees, the clubs have tried to do it as much as possible. Um, anybody who comes in to the game is given the educational possibilities. But that's some of them are, have limited capabilities. Others have great capabilities and don't use them. So, you know, yes, I, I understand it and I have a lot of sympathy. But I'm not going to get all the violins out just for footballers and ex-footballers when there's plenty of other people in society who have got bigger problems and didn't have the opportunities. And had they had the opportunities, they've used them right. One of the biggest buzzwords in uh, not just business, but in life at the moment is resilience. And the least resilient people I know are the people that tell, talk to me about resilience all the time. <laughs> resilience yeah. is, it's true. You know it's true. The, the yeah. people, what you have to be doing is, if you don't listen, you have to accept that I didn't listen, so I will go back and try and fix that when the time comes. So it sounds as if it's a lack of sympathy. It's not a lack of sympathy. But on the other hand, don't say, oh, it's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible, they never had a chance. That, I'm afraid, is not true. Um, and it would be a lie to say otherwise. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Pat, I'm going, to, I'm going to end with a question that I imagine you're probably asked about four or five times a day. But I want to put it into a bit of context. You were the first player who was subject to a transfer tribunal. I mean, when you moved from Clyde to Chelsea, because Chelsea offered uh, 50000 I believe, and Clyde wanted 200000 You've talked in your book about the fact that your first wage as a professional footballer was £35 a week. Do you regret missing out on the days of the huge pay packets for footballers or do you rejoice that you played at a time when football seemed to be more fun than it is now for a lot of people in the game? So all the way through that uh, lovely question and a very interesting question, which we could talk about forever. You said the most important word and the most important word in there was 
fun <laughs> of all the other words. And I played football and only ever played it for the pure joy and love of the game. Now, that's okay for me because, you know, that's why I did it. And I got pretty good at it to some degree. Um, I had a 19-year career out of it, made some money. But I can't look at the modern player and say, how dare you? I mean, classically, I was played a year twice at Chelsea, right? I played there for five years. I've also, also until recently, wrote a column for their website, 17 years I wrote it every Monday, a thousand words. I wrote for the program. I worked for Chelsea TV for 13 years. If you add up all that money together, it doesn't come to two weeks' wages of one of the top modern players. <laughs> so am I embittered by that? The answer is not for a second, not for a millisecond, because I have to look back and think, wait a minute, what happened before me? Bobby Moore? Or, you know, go all the way back, you know, to the great players, Jackie Milburn, or phenomenal players in the past who got a fraction of what I got. That's just life. That's just economy. If you spend your time being embittered about what you should or shouldn't get or did or didn't get, I know many, many, many players who feel that way. It doesn't exist even slightly. And it's not, oh, it was a better time to play. This is not what I feel. It's just you have your time, you enjoy your time, you make the best of it, you move on and do the next thing. Anything else is just torture for yourself. Um, and I try very hard to make sure players don't live in that tortured, ugly world because it's not healthy. I always enjoy meeting young Chelsea fans because I like to describe to them exactly what a terrible, terrible place Tamford Bridge used to be back in, back in the day. Certainly isn't a wave. I mean, it's incredible the changes at Chelsea Football Club in, in, in just three decades because it was... It was, I mean, it was not a pleasant place to go as an away fan. And I don't think it was too nice as a, for home fans, really, was it? It was a shocking place to play football. To, to be fair, it's really interesting that people ask you now and say, oh, you know, the players of today, you know, it's, it's totally different. I mean, in your day, they just kicked the ball long and the pitches were terrible and the stadiums <laughs> were rubbish and the conditions were awful. And I'm thinking... That none of that was my fault, you know. I didn't cause that. <laughs> I had to deal with that. I, had to stop. I wouldn't kind of be pointing fingers at me. I tell you a lovely little story that kind of underlines it rather brilliantly. Um, we we played so the pitches we played on were were not as flat and not as good, and you had to be skillful, or if you're a skillful player, you had to do that in these horrible, sometimes bobbly, sometimes muddy, whatever pitches. Um, and you watch the modern players, and I'm a, I'm a complete and utter fanboy of you know, David Silva when he was playing and Kevin De Bruyne. And uh, it was a period when Spurs were playing at White Hart Lane. Uh, not White at Wembley, remember, when they were getting the new stadium done. And Man, Man City came down to play against Spurs. But what had happened is the night before, there had been an American gridiron game at Wembley. So the pitch was cut up. It was bobbly. It, they were going to have to play in one of our pitches. And I'm going, <laughs> I cannot wait to see this. I want to see how they cope. They abs and even though I love them dearly, those types of players, they just could not cope. They couldn't play in it at all. And there was this lovely little warm glow of, 
yeah, okay, <laughs> then you keep on telling us about how brilliant the modern players are, but they couldn't cope with the conditions that we had to manage with. So, no, you deal with your own conditions at a time and you try and get as much joy and love of it. Um, and yeah, there was the horrible and ugly sides to it. But like everything, don't just look at the ugly sides of it. Remember there's beauty and love behind it. And there was that with every single football club. Pat, I said that was um, my last question. There's actually one last, last question. It comes from Kieran. He wants to know if you've got tickets yet for the um, 40th anniversary of the Jesus and Mary Chain tour. Ooh, can I whisper? Um, yeah. I went to one about a few years ago, four or five years ago, and I left early. Um, <laughs> and the reason being is they they kind of they cleaned it all up. Um, oh, really? The reason why I loved them was because. Yeah, it was the reason why I loved them because of all the feedback and the fabulous noise. It was, but it seemed very sanitising. No, me because and I've not become sanitised with my musical tastes. So if anyone was doing that, I would urge them to maybe try and find out if uh, my bloody Valentine are going to be playing because they won't sanitise their sound. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I'm, I'm sure it'll be a lovely gig and good luck to the lads and uh, you know get in there. But I'm afraid uh, I, I might miss that one. <laughs> I, I remember leaving uh, a Jesus and Mary Chain gig with a friend and my friend saying, that's one of the best 25 minutes I've ever spent. Yeah, I mean, one of the lovely things about the stuff that I've been writing, the books I've been writing in the last couple of years is it's not just football. There's other things in it. I mean, I'm dealing with, you know, the business side, like we were talking just now, you know, the people you meet, the other interests, there's a huge musical side of it and stories about, particularly the story about Morrissey and, Myself and Norman Whiteside and a guy called Vinnie Riley, which is a cracker. Um, there's a little bit, I mean, John Peel was a great friend. So being able to bring all this stuff and having a, an, a different type of life has been brilliant to uh, to write about. So I'll be honest with you, you've asked a music question at the end. My books could have all been music with no football if I'd have had my way. <laughs> but I think people wanted to hear the football too. And any any interview I do that contains the words Vinnie Riley and Norman Whiteside in the same sentence automatically <laughs> makes it a good interview as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it, it's 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 been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Pat. Thank you so much. We can't uh, recommend your well, your first book is fantastic. The, the latest book is brilliant. We can't recommend it enough. But it's been a joy talking to you, Pat. Thank you so much. And thanks to both of you as well. Cheers. Interestingly, he told us just after we stopped recording that the the publisher um, sent back the chapters about what happened at Motherwell, saying you're making this up, and Pat had to had to convince him that it was all all turn. It was what a situation for him to find himself in, Kieran. This lovely little left wing Joy Division fan, suddenly chief executive um, of, of a football club. It's it's fascinating to to hear, wasn't it? It is. And I think his ability to to blend the knowledge of the boardroom and the expectations there with his experiences from the dressing room put him in a unique position. Um, he's ridiculously modest because to do that job is a tough ask. Um, and by all accounts, he did it. He did it you know, professionally. Um, he didn't create conflicts of interest. You know, you know, he was telling us about the manager and so on. Um, yeah, it was it was fascinating. And you know, the book um, is, is excellent as well. So 
don't get our book, get Pat's. Um, <laughs> I'll be perfectly frank with you. Um, the, the, only, the only disappointing thing was the Baroness used to do the halftime draw at Tranmere Rovers when Pat was playing. And he didn't mention Tranmere once, so she's she's gutted. But uh, apart from that, yeah, uh, it, it was it was an education. And you know, watching the interview when the fact that he's got uh, closer by Joy Division and Psycho Candy by the Jesus and Mary Chain um, <laughs> in frames over his shoulder just just made me felt gave me a yeah, warm I'm feeling all over. Of warm feelings, I did not know the Baroness did the halftime draw. So she wheeled out the big drum thing, did she, and span it round and pulled it. Yeah. Oh, she, she well, you, you you've seen her flogging the books at our live events. You know, she's she's got a bit of patter. She's a machine. She won't be happy to hear you say, "Buy Pat's book, don't buy our book." <laughs> yeah. So this also puts into a new light, Kieran, and the, the your revelation that you took a, her second date or your second date was at Tranmere Rovers. So you took her to a game at Tranmere Rovers where she does the draw at half time. Well, she she'd moved on. From there, um, oh, okay. because uh, but yeah, she she lived on the Wirral, so she wasn't far away. But uh, yeah, because because her family was then working at Manchester United, uh, she would sort of switched allegiances, and and I've spent the last uh, many years trying to uh, successfully convert her into being a Brighton fan. Mm. Um, I, I was interested, Kieran, uh, as much by your reaction as Pat was saying this, is what Pat said when he says he has no issue whatsoever with the amount of cash that somebody throws into a football club. He said if they've got it and they want to spend it on the football club, there should be no limit on it. Um, but what there should be a limit on is, is debt. He was very uh, keen on that. But it's, it's, it's a slightly unexpected point of view, I thought, from, from Pat there. It was, and, and it's, it's intriguing. I absolutely get it that if uh, an owner wants to put... Five hundred million pounds, a billion pounds into a football club because they've got it spare, and they want to put that into the club in a form of inequity. I effectively get the club to issue shares. Um, there are benefits for that. What that doesn't deal with, however, is what happens if the circumstances of the owner change. So, in in the case of Roman Abramovich, he, he whilst he nominally lent the club money, it was money he was never going to ask back. Um, you know, Chelsea went into a crisis. Um, we've seen it with other owners who either their other businesses fail all of a sudden, and he was saying that in the case of Motherwell, um, or you, they've got the kids nagging the the, the investor. You know, this is our inheritance that's going down, and they say, "Right, I'm not prepared to put that new money in." You've got legacy contracts in terms of players and their financial rewards which have to be dealt with by the next person so you can be leaving you can be leaving behind a bit of a white elephant in the sense that um you know the, the club can generate 50 million pounds a year you've been subsidizing it to the tune of 100 million pounds a year and does that mean that the next person will be in that position so i i absolutely understand where he's coming from um i don't have the same uh, hostility towards debt uh, you know, we've got clubs such as Spurs that have borrowed huge sums of money and used it really wisely. Um, but uh, I can understand from the perspective of financial fair play is there to preserve the cartel as much as anything else. And, and yes, it does have some benefits, but what's being ignored is that it's actually anti-competitive. 
Mm. Uh, thank you to everyone who has donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod and get access to our chat community and our regular quizzes, that'd be very kind of you. And you can do so by going to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com and we will be back uh, whenever our next pod is due. Because, like, I haven't read the email either. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> The price of football. The price of football.